Thanks for being at church today. Can we welcome everybody that's with us online as well? Let's thank them for being with us. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing everything online on Facebook Live. We love that. Uh, we love that you're part of our community, even if you're out of town, at home sick, or uh, just joining us for the first time. So uh, yeah, we are ACF Church. If you're new here, we just want to welcome you. Uh, we hope that this feels like home for you. There's a lot There's a lot of change going on in Eagle River right now, huh? Just lots of coming and going, and um, many people don't know this, but ACF Church is probably about 70% either active duty or retired military. Did you know, did you know that? It's a lot of military people. We, is it, we didn't really set out to be a, a military church. We have a heart for people, and uh, military people are people too. And so um, I, I was a military kid, uh, traveled around a lot. My dad was in uh, the Air Force for 30 years, and so I get the lifestyle. Um, and so we love military, but you guys move a lot. So, um, and that's just the journey of coming and going, and there's new people in town, and then we send you off. And I can't tell you how many people I have been praying for in the past week or two as they've said goodbye to Alaska. There was one couple um, that on Wednesday night, man, we're out in the parking lot, and they just got tears streaming down their face as they're saying goodbye to this place that's become their home uh, to move on to the next place. And Man, I got to baptize both of them, uh, the husband and the wife, and um, got to marry them. And uh, then we're sending them off to the next place. So uh, anyway, uh, it, this, is, this is kind of the journey. And, and I want to tell you this, if you're here today, don't use the fact that people are coming and going as a reason not to engage in relationships. Um, I've made that mistake before where there, there can be sort of a, a guard that comes up and feeling like, ah, I don't know if I want to get into this thing and know that you or I might move away. And I just want to tell you that's all the more reason to lean in. And so I want to tell you if you're here today and you're brand new, uh, if this is your first Sunday, uh, what this means is if you're waiting on the person next to you to say hi to you, uh, they might be waiting for you to say hi to them because they might be as new as you are. So uh, lean in and make relationships. And uh, if you see a moving truck in your neighborhood this week, see that as an opportunity uh, for somebody to potentially come to come to church for the first time. Uh, uh, studies show if you just invite people to church, many people are willing to do it. Uh, they just need an invitation. And so let's be the first uh, to, to invite people here. We have a big sign in the front of the building that just says, Welcome Home. And that is our heart, that as you come here, you would feel like even if home is, you know, somewhere in Georgia or South Carolina or in Missouri or, or, or you know, Nebraska, that, that this is really home for you in Alaska. So um, that's not my sermon, but that's what's happening. So let's talk about what's going on around us. We are in a series of talks called Rhetorical Questions, and we're talking about the questions that Jesus asked and how when Jesus would ask a question, it was never about him getting the answer. Because he's Jesus. So uh, he was always trying to help us understand something deeper about our hearts or our lives. And so he would ask these questions that would dig around to people's souls. And, and it, they would, they would kind of stir up their hearts and, 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 and create this, this tension that they had to deal with. And so each week has dealt with a different tension, a different struggle that Jesus is trying to, to kind of tease out of the people that he's asking these questions of. And so this week, this question is simply this, why do you call me Lord? It's a question that Jesus asks, and, and it's at the end of uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. So we're, we're talking about basically a statement at the end of a sermon today. And this question is maybe the most difficult one that we've had to go through yet. Um, it, it's a question that, honestly, uh, some of you might get really uncomfortable with, 
Um, it's the kind of question that you might be like, I think now's a great time for coffee. And, uh, and so we've got lots of exits, um, if you need to. Um, but this is just, it, it digs around in us because what we're really talking about is, are you saved? Do you truly know God? Have you really experienced salvation? And does he really have your heart? And so this question, it really gets into us. And it, it's something that I think that we're going to have to kind of struggle through uh, together today. Uh, so here's a question. Anybody, children of the 90s in the room? Any children of the 90s? Okay, a bunch of you guys got some children. I'm a child of the 90s. I was born in 82. And so the 90s are kind of my, my uh, generation of music and of technology. And I was thinking this week about um, how, you know, there were things that just happened in the 90s that shaped what we have today. And one of those things was, do you guys remember when AOL came out with chat rooms? You guys remember that? I mean, that like changed the world. I remember my, my buddy came over one day and he's like, bro, I'm going on a date with this girl. And I'm like, where did you meet her? And he said, in a chat room. And I was like, what is this chat room? And so we go over to his house, you know, got his gateway, you know, 486 or whatever it was. And he pulls out the CD. Remember the CDs? You could get them at gas stations and stuff, the AOL CDs, uh, which if you're like me, I just grabbed stacks of them. So I never had to pay money uh, to the service. You just keep loading them in there. And basically the CD would give you access to AOL um, online. And so we log in and there we are, like in the middle of this online community. And there were chat rooms everywhere and Insta messaging. And, and I was like, well, how does it work? And he said, well, you just, you just make a screen name. And I'm like typing into my name. And he's like, no, 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 not, not your real name. <laughs> no, you don't do that online. You make something up like, you know, fit dude 974-673-1204. That's, that's your screen name. And so I, we made a screen name and, and I'm not a fit dude, but that's what we did. So, um, so there we are, you know, looking at chat rooms and there's like dog lovers, right? Cat lover chat room, Dungeons and Dragons chat rooms, there's, you know, car maintenance chat rooms, there's Christian single chat, there's everything online, you know, and, and I just remember spending hours and hours talking to people that I don't even care about, about stuff that I could kind of care less about, but it, it was a, it was a feeling of, of community, a feeling of these, these relationships, um, but they weren't real relationships. And, and I want to tell you this, that church can kind of become like a chat room this sort of anonymous community talking about things we don't really care that much about. It can easily become that. And at every church, there are two kinds of people every Sunday. There are people who are fully devoted followers of Jesus, who have made him Lord of their life. And there are those who love to talk about religion. And what we're going to talk about today is a, is a section of scripture where, where Jesus is, is addressing exactly that. But to, to lay a foundation for that, I want to actually go to the book of Acts and this situation where this guy named Paul, uh, who was one of the, one of the guys who is the most, I, guess, I would say the most influential man in the early church. And he was being persecuted for what he was teaching. This guy, Luke, we're going to be in a, in a passage in Luke 6. He also wrote, wrote the book of Acts, often called Luke Acts. And in, in uh, the book of Acts, this account in chapter 17 is a, is a moment where Paul has been brought before all of these people in a place called Mars Hill or also known as the Areopagus. It's, a, it's an outdoor public courtroom. And so he's being brought before all of the officials to sort of state his case and to, to deal with, with this, this persecution. And here's what it says in Acts 17, 21. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see 
that in every way you are very religious. Now, when, when you read that, it, it just it hits you different ways, doesn't it? Like if I were to say this to you today, ACF Church, I can see that in every way you are very religious. I don't know how that lands on you. Some of you are like, absolutely, I, I, I am a religious person and, and I like that. I, I don't mind being called religious. I am a religious person. And others of you, that grates at you, right? I mean, that would be like an, like an offense. If I was like, hey, dude, you're very religious. You would be offended by that. And, and what we see throughout the Gospels, as the word religious comes up, there's typically a negative connotation, right? Because it can be used different ways, right? Like, I'm, I religiously brush, brush my teeth in the morning. I, I religiously go to church, or I religiously go to work, or I religiously hang out with my wife, right? Or you can use it towards your faith, and, and then it becomes something really unhealthy. And so Jesus is dealing with a highly religious, mainly Jewish crowd who knows all of the rules and knows how to live these morally upright lives. And so this week I was typing away, dealing with this, and I decided to go on Facebook and take a bit of a poll and just ask people like, what are sort of the strange religious rules that you grew up with? And you guys listen, I have never had so much traction on a Facebook post ever. I don't have that many friends either. And I think I shut it off at like 195 comments were on there about these religious things that people had experienced. And here's the thing, as I was reading, and I read every single one of them, as I was reading them, I, I realized that, like, I think everybody has a wound from religion. I, I think almost anybody has a wound. And, and maybe it's a, it's a self-inflicted wound. It's something that you just misunderstood and, and uh, you know, you did it to yourself. Maybe it's something you were taught. Uh, maybe it's a friend or somebody that you knew. And because of their religious behavior, you're like, ah, Jesus isn't for me. The church isn't for me. And, and it affected you somehow. Because I'm telling you, people lit up. And I think if I were to ask all of you today, hey, let's just tell stories of a religious wound. Almost every one of you would have one. And so I just got to read a few. Can I do that? I want to read it because I want to read like all of them. But I don't have six hours to go through 109. These are just a couple ones that were interesting. Jessica says this. Um, we couldn't wear shorts above our knees. It's important. Uh, we couldn't date guys who didn't go to our specific church. That'd be bad. Uh, we had to wear dresses to church. We couldn't listen to anything but Christian music. Oh, and we had a TV guardian that muted all the cuss words. So that's good. You know, taking care of you. This is, remember, anybody have one of those boxes? A special box that muted all the... It's great. Laura says this. Uh, my grandfather was in an accident in the factory he worked at uh, when he was in the hospital uh, recovering for several weeks, thus missing some services. <laughs> when he was finally healed enough to return with his whole family in tow, he was called out in front of the congregation for missing church and told that his sin of missing church would keep him from going to heaven. Amen, right? Oh my gosh. Some of you, this is so, in fact... I, I've stopped going to Fred Meyer after church because I have such awkward interactions with people. I like here, I don't know if you're at church. I don't take, I'm like, Bill, where's Bill? Who's, I don't know who's at church, but when I see people at the grocery store after church, they're always like, oh, I was really sick and, you know, stuff going on. And I just, I don't, I don't care, you know. Just, anyway, <laughs> awkward conversations of people trying to defend their church attendance or, or lack thereof. So anyway. This is from Billy. I wasn't allowed to clean or do any work on Sunday unless I was grounded. And then all I did was work on Sunday. So that's from Billy. <laughs> Dana said no buying or selling anything on Sunday, no working on Sunday unless you're in the health field. So there you go. So if you're in the health field, if you're a nurse or a doctor, you 
get to work on Sunday. Good for you. Um, Amber says the only excuse for missing church was if you were sharing the Romans road. It's important. Uh, in later years, they loosened up and added violently ill to the list. So that's good. Which, by the way, if you're puking, please stay home. Just, we don't need none of that. She goes on to say this, which I, I think is funny. Pastor's wives uh, must be at every service, bridal and baby shower, lead the women's Bible studies, have only church friends, invite and host strangers in every family holiday, and always look joyful in their thigh-high neck, uh, thigh-high neck, loose-fitting clothing while doing it all. So that's for my wife, which I don't, she's not even here. So I'm breaking all of these rules. Tell you what, yeah, that's, I could preach a whole other sermon on just that. So the last one's really funny. Um, maybe my favorite, Emily from South Georgia, no cussing on Sundays. Isn't that awesome? But Monday rolls around, right? Make your grandma blush by your language. No cussing. And Sunday's football day, so that's even harder, right, you guys who watch football? Anyway, this is so interesting. You guys probably all have stuff. And, and here's, what's, here's what's interesting as I was reading them, is at the heart of all of these things is probably some kind of good thing, right? Like the desire to protect your kids, you know, and have them wear uh, clothing that is appropriate. I mean, that's not a bad thing as a parent. Or the desire to, to, to take time off and have a, have a Sabbath, you know. Um, I mean, at the, at the core of a lot of these things, I think we raise our kids trying to protect them or we, you know, inflict these other rules on people because we're like, no, this is what it means to love God. And, and at the core of them is probably some... Maybe I'm giving too much credit, but but some form of a desire to honor the holiness of God and and to follow Him. But but then it just gets messy. And I want I want you to know, anytime our preferences or things that we've created that are extra biblical rules are on par with with the truth of Scripture, we have birthed religion. That's where it begins. It begins when our preferences, our desires that are, that are not biblical things, that we put those on par with scripture and then we create religion. And this is what was going on in this context. These, these highly Jewish people knew the rules and knew the laws. And, and the scribes and the Pharisees and all of these people would get together and talk about, well, what does it really mean to follow the law? And, and one of the ones that Jesus was dealing with just earlier in chapter six is the law of the Sabbath. Now, if you don't know the law of the Sabbath, it's pretty simple. Um, the law of the Sabbath was, was, it actually began at creation. So when God created the world, he, he created for six days and then took the seventh day as a day of rest. And he was teaching his people the rhythm that he was asking us to live, that we would work, five, work six days and then, and then we'd take a day to, to rest. And, and that's a good thing. We, we love Sabbath. Um, Alaskans, we don't take it until October rolls around, but you know, and we love Sabbath, this idea that we would take rest. And I think we all know intuitively that we need rest, that we are not healthy human beings when we just go, go, go. So that's a good, that's a beautiful thing, right? That's good. God says it. He says you should have rest. Absolutely. But then they were like, well, when is the Sabbath? Now, what day is that supposed to happen? Okay. So, so then the question is, well, what is work? A work is to like lift a heavy burden of some kind. Well, what's really a burden? Like, what's the difference between working or just even standing up could be a burden, right? So when is it really a burden? Well, here's how the scribal law defines a burden. Food equal in weight to a dried fig. Enough wine for mixing in a goblet. Milk enough for one swallow. Honey enough to put upon a wound. Oil enough to anoint a small member. Ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Read enough to make a pen. 
Okay, that's a lot to remember. Did you guys get that? Okay, go and Sabbath. Go enjoy your Sabbath. That's, that, that, this is what happens in the church, I think, all the time. It, it, is we, we see the way of Jesus, and we're like, that's way too easy. Like, man, that, that's way too simple. Like, there's, it must be more complicated than that. And so we're like, well, let's define it in a deeper way. And maybe it's even from a good place that we're, we're trying to, to make it more clear of what it looks like to truly honor God. But then in the end, we don't honor him at all. And what we create is religion. So Jesus, in the, in the end of this, this chapter 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? What he's doing is he's dealing with all of this religion and all of these people who know the religious rules, but they don't truly love God. And now when I was studying this, this was really kind of difficult at first. I'm like, okay, so did Jesus just hammer on religious behavior? Did he hammer on all of this and then end by saying, now, now go do what I tell you? What you're going to see is that this question is a rhetorical question. What Jesus is not doing is saying, hey, I want to give you more rules, I want to give you more work to do. Let me give you a new law to follow. What Jesus is referring to is his teaching, which, which his teaching all boils down to one simple thing. It's just, it's just this. Listen, it's so simple. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus keeps coming back to the same thing. He's a pretty repetitive preacher. He just keeps coming back. And then actually right before this, he goes through what are called the Beatitudes and describes like blessings and woes and how you think it's blessed to do this. We talked about it last week, but actually it's blessed to be like this. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the needy. That's, that's different than the world, the way we see things. What Jesus wants for people to do is not to add another rule, but to truly repent. And what you need to know is repentance isn't just to change your behavior. It's to change your mind. It's to actually think differently about the world, about yourself, about this, this place that we live in. It's to think differently. And this is the beginning of a true life in Christ versus a life of religion. See, religious people don't change their mind, they just change their behavior. They do lots of really good-looking things, but on the inside, they're not truly giving their heart to God. We could define legalism like this. Extra-biblical boundaries created to remove the messiness and beauty of living in a relationship with God. You see, what a lot of people want is sort of this paint-by-numbers Christianity, which, if you don't, have you ever done paint-by-numbers? Anybody ever done this? It's cool. You know, ones are red. Just color all the ones red. Twos are blue. Color all the twos. And by the time you get done, there it is. It's a picture, and, and they all look exactly the same, right? And that's what people want especially in the church, is that everybody would look exactly the same because it's way too dangerous and messy that you yourself would actually hear the Spirit of God and figure out what it looks like to love Him and to love others. That's way too simple, isn't it? And really, it's, that is where life comes from. This idea of legalism and religion is what steals the, the joy from following Jesus. I mean, really, somebody who truly follows Jesus, Jesus should be the most joyful person in the room. Is that how your friends would define following Jesus? Is that how they define you if you're a Christian? That man, man, you just have joy in, in, in what you do. Legalists, they, they add rules and they ruin it, right? Like, what do you love? Like chocolate ice cream. How about that? Anybody love chocolate ice cream? So let's, let's just, here, here it is. Here's the rule. So chocolate ice cream, um, it's good. You can eat it on Wednesdays, but you can only use a spoon, not a fork. 
And uh, you, can, you can only use caramel, not chocolate on top of, because that's gross. You can't do that. And you have to make sure you eat it between 5 and 6 p.m. with your right hand, not your left hand. And you can only have 25 bites to do so. There it is. So go enjoy your chocolate ice cream. Wouldn't that ruin it? I just want to eat some dang chocolate ice cream, right? I mean, it's just simple. It, let it be simple. Don't ruin it for me. And, and, and this is really what people do is it's like, let's add some, some boundaries that are extra biblical. Now, let me, let me tell you, there are biblical boundaries. That's a whole other sermon, but there are biblical boundaries. But when you make extra biblical boundaries and you say, this is what it looks like to love God and love others, it starts to turn into religion, and it's hard to spot sometimes, isn't it? It's really hard to spot. Uh, Christians have tried to get really good at telling who's in and who's out. But I've just learned that, like, I'm a terrible Messiah. I, I just am. And you are too. And we're really bad at knowing who's in and who's on the outside but what people do or say. We can look at certain fruit of their lives and things like that. But in the end, we don't even know, right? I mean, you look at somebody and you're like, man, they're a total mess. Look at them. They're smoking out front. They must not be in, right? But last week, they're, you know, smoking pot on the street corner. It's like they've taken a step forward, right? But you're like, oh, they're such a wreck. You see somebody else who, you know, says a cuss word, and you're like, oh, they must not be a Christian. But they're over here in their life, and they're dealing with surrendering this addiction to God in some other way. We just, we have no idea what's going on in people's hearts. So Jesus is dealing with this crowd of people that is very religious, I think Jesus would say, hey, you are very good at talking about religious things. You have all kinds of things that you do that look really good. And so he starts to do things to make a point. And it says this earlier in in verse 9. It says, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. This is a man with a a withered up hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Wow. So they're all arguing about the Sabbath. Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. There's this idea that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And, and is, it, is it more lawful to heal somebody, to take a life, or to save one? And he sees this man that needs a, help, and needs a hand. He, he needs a hand. He needs a hand, and so he helps him out heals his hand, and then he's like, what do you think about that? And they want to kill Jesus, right? Because that's what religious people do when you break the rules. They, they start plotting to get rid of you, right? To push you farther to the outside. Jesus broke, the, and, and you get the sense that Jesus is doing this on purpose. You start to think, I, I, think, he's, I think he's intentionally pushing them. Like, he probably could have pulled this man aside and somewhere in a corner just like, you're healed, right? Instead, publicly in front of all these religious people, he heals him. He kind of intentionally breaks the rule to be like, how do you feel about that, huh? What do you think? Heal the man on the, on the Sabbath. What, what are you going to do with that, huh? And he keeps pushing them. And then they start talking about love. Now, love's another thing. What does it mean to love somebody? Now, all these religious people are like, we love really well. We love people. The problem is they just love people who are like them. They love people who believe what they believe, who, who would be on their side. That's who they love. And guess what? Everybody loves like that. That's easy love. Verse 35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Jesus says, love looks different than what you think it is. If there's any confusion about love, it means to love somebody from a different political background, a different racial background, a different religious background, that you can love them in the name of Jesus. That that person that that just grates at you at work, that person that doesn't give back your lawnmower when you loaned it to them, do you love that person? That family member that wounded you years ago, what does it look like to love them? Jesus is like, "Now, now are you good at loving? Because this is true love. What you're doing is creating religion, a religious side of love. And then once again, we come back to this core question that Jesus asked today. And I want, I want us all to wrestle with this. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So this idea of calling God Lord is a good thing, Right? Like, like, yes, nod heads. Yeah, we should, this is a good thing. Any preacher that doesn't say you, sh- you should consider calling God your Lord needs to get off the stage, right, and stop preaching. It's important to call God our Lord. That's an important thing. It's a good thing. In fact, we, we have this verse that we throw around all the time, Romans ten nine. You guys know this verse? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, so there it is. Salvation in one verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If it was that easy, my job would be way simpler. Let's just all stand up and I'm going to get all of you to recite this. Jesus is Lord. If it was that simple, man, it would be, it'd be a lot easier to do what we do, but it's not that simple, is it? What Jesus is saying is, is that saying Jesus is Lord this is going to grate at some of you. Saying Jesus is Lord is not enough. It's not. It's not enough just to say he is Lord. It's not enough even to sincerely just to, to sing at church. I mean, you can be here all Sunday at every service, just dancing in the back, you know, with your hands in the air. It's not enough, it's not enough to confess your sins. You'll be like, oh God, I screwed up this week. Uh, you know, this is a mess. It's not enough to ask for God's help. God, can you help me with this? Can you heal this? Can you get me out of this situation? You pay off my debt, you know, like whatever it is that you pray for, it's not enough. It's, it's this idea that there, there is something more to it. If you could just call Jesus Lord and, and then you could be saved, there wouldn't be any need for Jesus. The whole point is, is that nothing we can do can save us. And, and this is so different from what this crowd believes is, is, is there's this feeling that you can almost like assist God in your salvation, right? Right? Anybody ever used to play football? Ever, ever have like a couple good assists? Like you didn't get the touchdown, but you were the assist. You didn't get much credit, but you tried to, right? So like, hey, I threw the ball, you know, come on. Like I was part of the assist there. And, and that's kind of what people tend to do. I'm, a, I'm sort of assisting God in my salvation. I, I did a little bit. And so you got people in this crowd who are very good at looking good on the outside, but really broken and, and not receiving the truth of Jesus on the inside. Write this down. Legalism can look like lordship, but it isn't. It can look like lordship. Once again, it looks like somebody has it all together. It looks like somebody goes to church, they, you know, they've got their life in line, but that does not mean that he is lord of their lives. It, it doesn't. It, it can look like it from the outside. I had this friend named Patrick growing up, and uh, I used to love going over to Patrick's house. We'd do sleepovers, 
It's always fun. So we go to do sleepovers, and, and that was always fun, but I always hated breakfast at Patrick's house for whatever reason. I, I couldn't put my finger on it, but we'd wake up, and we'd get cereal, and um, my favorite at that point was Lucky Charms. Love, love me some Lucky Charms. And so we'd get some Lucky Charms, and I'd always eat his Lucky Charms. We'd be like, I'm just not doing it for me, you know? It's just, I don't know what it is. It's just something. And so one time I'm over there, and I'm pulling the Lucky Charms out of the cabinet, and I noticed in the back of the cabinet there was this, like, plastic bag all wadded up in the corner. And I pull it out, and it's full of what looked like Lucky Charms, except for it says, Marshmallow Magic on the, on the side of it. And I was like, we've been fooled, Right? His mom bought a box of Lucky Charms like, you know, 10 years ago. And then since then, she just keeps filling up the box of Lucky Charms with the marshmallow magic. You know, we're smarter than you. We can figure stuff out. Some of you are laughing because you've done this. But it's funny, like, that's really what it's like when you encounter a legalistic person who says, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a believer in Jesus. I'm a, I'm a Christian. Is there, it's almost like ah, something's just off, Right? You maybe walked into churches like this where you're like, man, there's just, it seems like everything's there. There's music and there's a guy on stage and there's some, you know, people around and, you know, they're opening the Bible and, and yet I go home and there's just like, I can't put my finger on it. It's the absence of grace. That's what, that's what you're, that's what you're connecting with. Is this, this idea that there's salvation by grace, but, Right? And, and maybe nobody would say that, but, but as you're hanging out with these people, you're like, no, there's a, there's a but. There's an addition. There's something more to be added to the good news of Jesus. The good news is sort of okay news if you can do enough to assist God in your salvation. It can kind of look like it. So this is why Jesus' question is such an interesting question. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? Which when I tell my kids this, when I'm like, why don't you listen to me? That is code for, you should listen to me. You should do that. You should clean your room. You should pick up the trash. You should do your chores. What you need to understand is that Jesus is not giving them a new law. He's not giving them more to do to assist God in his salvation. This is a rhetorical question about the foundation of their lives. Like, what have you built your life on? Have you built it on your ability to try to get cleaned up enough for God? Because guess what? That ain't working. Or have you built it on Jesus? And then he starts describing this. He describes these two different men who build homes. And he says this in verse 48. As he talks about this man, he says, this is a man who actually experiences true lordship in his life, who's made God the Lord of his life. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. Okay, so simple story. I don't know if you've ever built a house, but here's a man who says, I need to make sure there's a solid foundation if I'm going to build a home. And I need to make sure that I built it in a good location. And I need to make sure that I spend the time and the energy and the money and the effort needed to make sure that what I put, the structure that I put on top of that foundation is gonna hold together. And Jesus is like, there's a man who's made God the Lord of his life, who's putting me at the center of things, and he's like a man who built his foundation, his life, on a stone, on the rock of Jesus. That's the idea. That Jesus is that rock. He is the foundation of your life. It's not Jesus and a little bit of your church on Sundays. 
It's not Jesus and the fact that you tithe to church or Jesus and any of that. It's Jesus alone all the time. Now, in this context, what you need to understand is that it's a very sandy area. If you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee in this, this location, and it's just there's sand everywhere. And in fact, there's still people who build their houses on sand there. Um, I've been there. There's the, the, these Bedouin people that move from place to place and they build these, these tents and these small structures and the first time it gets a little bit of rain or, you know, a little bit of wind or whatever, they, they just, they fall apart. And so then they pick up and they move it over 10 feet and they build it again and they just keep doing it from place to place, location to location. So there are people that do this. If you wanted to build your house on a rock, you would have to put some time into it. You would have to be determined to do that, to find a great location. And you couldn't just do it anywhere. But from the outside, two different houses, you wouldn't really know if one was built on a rock or one was built on the sand. You can't really tell until the flood comes. Now, the flood in this passage, there's some difference in opinion between commentators about what the flood is. Here's my opinion. I don't think the flood is like a bad day at work. I don't think the flood is like, you know, when the flood comes and I get tested by, uh, you know, a health problem in my life or, you know, some issues at work or, you know, some family, some marriage things. That's, I don't think that's the flood. I honestly believe the flood is the day of judgment. This is where you go get coffee. The flood is the day that all of us, including myself, stand before a holy God and he separates the wheat from the chaff. He separates what is true from what is false. He separates religion, legalism, from lordship. That's the flood. And so he's saying there are people who on that day will come before me and I will look at them and I say, oh, you built your house on a foundation. You built your house on Jesus. This man did so. So the question for you is this, how will you do in that day? Will the answer be, I put my hope and my trust, my foundation on Jesus, and the whole world knows it. Like people can tell that I'm a follower of Jesus because of the way I live. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4, it says this, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Again, not ourselves, not what we can do, not our religious behavior, not our church attendance, not our ability to, you know, to, to not cuss when we bust our knuckles changing that alternator on the car. That's not what we put our hope in. It's not what we proclaim ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus shines in our hearts and he changes our lives, people around us, they see it. And the world knows it. It's like there is a light upon us. And I love that he says, because you are Lord, that makes me a servant. And, and I don't know for you, this word Lord, um, it's kind of loaded a little bit. Have you ever called somebody Lord? Probably not, right? In fact, this is not the kind of authority we want to give to anybody. Uh, the idea that you would ever call somebody Lord, which I don't think you should, it would, it would be difficult for us because, man, no, I'm independent. I'm in charge of my own life. I'm man of my world. Like, I'm not making anybody else Lord. But actually, that is the beginning of salvation. But it's not just to say it, right? We just said that. It's not just to say it. It's to do it. It's to make God the Lord of your life. This word Lord in the Greek is the word doulos, which simply means self-induced slavery. To give up one's rights. That's literally what it means 
to make Jesus your Lord. In fact, write this down. Lordship means choosing to be owned. It's a decision you make. Now, the word slavery brings up all kinds of baggage, right, for us. It's one of the worst black spots on our American history, this idea of slavery. But this is a self-induced slavery, like an indentured servant, that we would go to God and say, God, I am giving up my rights, and I'm just doing what you tell me to do. What Jesus is trying to help these people see is what true discipleship really is. Like, a disciple is a follower. Like, I am doing what my master says. I have a Lord, and, and a disciple is the kind of person that when you see them live, you could kind of be like, man, it, it looks like somebody's telling them what to do. So you can know a disciple because that's their lifestyle. They live in such a way that it looks like somebody's telling them what to do. That's how you know somebody's a, a disciple of Jesus because somebody's telling them what to do. So lordships means saying, I'm going to be owned, not just for an hour and a half on Sunday, not just this portion of my life, but my whole life. Now here's what I do. I'm just being honest with you. There are parts of my life that are very easy to give to God. And there are things that I am better than most at looking very holy and looking like God is Lord of this portion. Like I, I, can, I can do that really good. I can do Christian good. Some of you can too. Like you, you got this, this pile of like really good Christian stuff that you can do really, really well. And so what I tend to do is put all of my energy on that so that nobody notices what's off in the corner in hopes that maybe, maybe all of this will make up for that. So instead of making God Lord of my life, I make him Lord of categories of my life, of portions of my life, instead of Lord of my life entirely. Jesus is saying he doesn't give a lot of wiggle room for this. He's very clear about what it takes to be a follower of him. It's a very much, there's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. It's not like I can kind of be in and kind of out. I can ride the fence, you know. I'm just, I am Canada, right? I'm just kind of neutral right here. I'm not going to be in, I'm not going to be out. Like there is no option for that. There's just not options for that. Lordship means to be fully owned by God. And I want you to know this, you will be owned by something. As human beings, we were created by God as his people, his creation to be owned by him. So it is literally in our creation, in our DNA, to be owned by things. And so you will either be owned by God or you'll be owned by your sin. And you, and you know this, right? Because you thought that you had control over something and then you found out it had control over you, right? You, you, you said, oh, this is going to be a good thing. Oh, this would be fun. And then you did it and then it owned you. And it changed your life. It affected you. Maybe it still affects you today. So we know this. We know that we will be owned by something. You will never be independent. You will never be neutral. So this idea of slavery or ownership, like we got to get through that and past that just to kill our pride, that the idea that we won't be owned because we will be owned. The question is who or what will you be owned by? And the reason we don't like this is because we have never seen a truly loving master. We have never seen, there's no person in this world that could ever truly reflect the kind of love that Jesus has. And so this idea that we could be owned, I think if we understood who Jesus was, who God was in its true form, in their true form, then we would just be running to, to, to make ourselves slaves to what he wants for us. But we just, we don't trust his love. We don't trust that truly God has the best for us in mind in all situations. And that loving him and honoring him is always going to be what's best for us, for our families, for those around us. 100% of the time. There's a passage in uh, Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus pushes this even a little bit deeper. 
In verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Whoa. This is, this is devastating news for the church today. Like this, this, this verse should rock, it should rock our world. And I get that this is not like a fun sermon. But I will stand before God one day for what I preach. And, and he, will, he will say, were you, were you honoring to, to my word? Because the truth is, did you know this is true? Did you know you could call God Lord, Lord, and stand before him one day and be like, God, look what I did. I taught my kids Bible verses every morning. God, look what I, we built a big church. Look, everybody showed up and we sang, look, we had a fog machine on Sunday morning. God, did you see what I did? And as a pastor, I know this is true. I know that, I know that we can draw a crowd. But sermons like this and the one that we're talking about is always what shrunk it. And, and I just, I struggle with this sometimes because I just wonder, could I, I could maybe build a bigger church than Jesus. Like we could get a crowd. We do a lot of fun stuff. But if, and that's great. And I love getting people together and I love drawing a crowd. But if we are not honoring the gospel, then we are wasting our time. We might as well go do something else. So we honor the word of God. We come back to the gospel, but we have to be honest with ourselves and say, you know what? It's not enough simply to say, Lord, Lord. Jesus just said it. You can't just say it because there are those who even perform miracles, right? Can you imagine? I don't know if you've, you've cast out any demons this morning. Um, but if you did, wouldn't you be like, that was awesome. I am God's special little man, right? Did you see that? Cast out a demon. That was amazing. I mean, how could I not be saved? He literally says, you can do works of miracles in my name, successfully somewhat, and not truly love me, not truly know me. So that leaves us to come back to what is Jesus talking about? What can save? Here's the answer. True repentance. True repentance. Truly a heart that is transformed by the gospel that says, None of this stuff that I'm trying to clean up and do well can save me. Not any of it. Not one iota pleases God or impresses him. Or if you're here today and you're like, I am so messed up, I don't even belong in church. You are in the same boat as everybody else. We are all messed up. None of us belong before God. It's only by way of Jesus that we're saved. That's the point. The point Jesus is making is not, don't, don't go get more laws. Consider true repentance. Truly giving your heart to him. So Jesus talks about another man. And maybe this is you today. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So write this down. Religious people choose ruin by avoiding lordship. That's Jesus' point. We think we can avoid lordship because nobody wants to be owned. I don't want to be owned. And by avoiding that ownership, we choose to be owned by our sin and we, we actually experience ruin on our house. This man built his house not on Christ, but on the sand. The sand could be anything. 
It could be your religious behavior. It could be a church attendance. It could be a lot of different things. If it's anything but Jesus, when the flood comes, you are not safe. We need to build the foundation of our lives. A foundation is what, what controls everything else that's above it. It's what drives your life, the foundation of your life to be built on Jesus. But instead, most of us are so busy avoiding his lordship. And we think, man, I can kind of experience both. Can I have one leg in, one leg out? It's kind of, this is like the kiss of Judas, right? That's really what he's talking about. This, I can, I can actually act affectionately towards you one moment and then give you a way to be crucified in the next. Like, that's really what religion is. And so he's calling us to true lordship. Uh, when we first moved to Alaska, my wife and I, remember we were driving out to Palmer, and uh, we saw the sign on the side of the road. I'm sure you've seen it. This says, uh, number of moose kills in Alaska. It's like 395 or something this year. I don't know. And, and so we had this conversation um, about what it would look like if there was ever a moose on the road. And so I asked Amanda, like, what are you going to do in that situation? What, what do you do? And she goes, well, you just, you, you swerve. You miss the moose. And I'm like, no, right? And I'm like, the first thing you do is you hit the brakes. You slow down and you try to avoid if you can. But if you're going to hit it, hit it. But don't you go into the ditch. Don't you roll the car with the children in the back because you're trying to save this beautiful brown creature on the road. Like, hit the moose, right? And we'll pick it up and we'll eat it. So... The point was simply that you try to avoid one thing and you end up experiencing another. You try to avoid giving God lordship in your life and you end up choosing devastation and disaster. And here's the, here's the interesting thing. This is like men in the room, daddies in the room. I just want you to listen up. He doesn't say that the, the devastation and the ruin of himself was great. It said of his house was great. I just want to push you. And, and, and ask you, are you making decisions and choosing things for your family that will lead your family into making Jesus their Lord? Because I said this last week, your kids will not become what you teach, they will become who you are. They will not do what you say, they will do what you do. And we know that as parents, this terrifies me. But we have to ask this simple question, are we leading our families or are we leading them to ruin? What are we teaching our kids? What are we teaching our friends? Are we leading people into making Jesus the Lord of their lives? So, overview of the story. It's really simple. The house is your life. Your life is the house. The foundation is Jesus. The flood is this final judgment that we stand before God. And, and all of what we say is true will be tested and tried for what is actually true. And if you're here today and you're like, Brian, this doesn't sound very gracious. No, what you need to know, know is that this is the center of God's grace. Because what I'm saying here today is none of your actions can do it. It's only true repentance that leads to a life change, that leads to different decisions. This true repentance to rethink your life and say, God, I'm, I'm fully in. I'm going to make you Lord of all things, not just sections. That type of repentance will change your behavior. But, but grace, grace is the reason we change. It's not our excuse not to change. And so we are all about grace. This is the foundation of grace. Not by our works are we saved. Not by our religion are we saved. But by Jesus alone. And what Jesus is asking you today, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not truly repent? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not truly make me the Lord of your life? Why do you act like I'm the Lord, but keep thinking the way that you used to think? Stop. Think differently 
about the world. Think differently about your life. This is a, a small portion of your existence that we're having right now. And so if you're here today, maybe that is you and maybe you just have been avoiding having a master because you think you can do it better. And maybe today you're like, I, I'm just ready. I'm just ready to trust that God loves me. I'm ready to, to make myself a, a slave to him and a slave to righteousness instead of a slave to my sin because I just believe today that God loves me that much and that trusting him is always gonna be better. And if you wanna make that decision, can we just bow together today? Let's pray together. If you wanna make that choice, you can pray with me right now. Jesus, I just confess that there are parts of my life that I have left outside of the the saving grace of Jesus. There are portions of my life that I'm still holding on to that I've chosen not to make you Lord of. And Today, God, I know that I'm not good enough. I know that I can't fix myself to the point of restoration and salvation. So I need a savior. So today I just humble myself before my loving father and I am choosing to be owned by you. God, there's fear in that. There's a lot of what ifs. What if, what if God doesn't come through? What if it's not as good as I think? And, and Jesus, would you just put our fear to rest? God, I pray for everyone in this room today that we would feel your warm embrace, the touch of our creator. God, you love us and you know us and you created us. No one loves us the way that you do. No one has our best interest in mind like you do. And no one offers us anything better than what you offer us. So we choose life in Jesus instead of trying to to have one leg in and one leg out. We choose life in Christ. We resist religion. I want to pray for the person in the room here today who knows that they've given way to religion. I spend a lot of time trying to figure out who's in and who's out and adding rules because of fear. God, I pray that today could be a day that we trust you. We fully trust you. God, we believe that to love you and to love your neighbor as ourselves, God, is enough. That is, that is the beginning of all of the rest of the stuff. So could we truly know those things as a church? And God, I pray that we would be a light in a very dark state. People would see ACF Church and they would be drawn to true life change. And what they experience here would be different maybe than what they've experienced before. And they wouldn't come in and taste religious behavior. They would, they would come in they would see people who are transformed by the gospel. So we receive that fresh and new today, God. We love you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.